We are continuing in our study through the book of Mark, Mark's action-packed gospel. And just before we dive into, no pun intended, dive into Jesus' water walking incident, I would like to follow up from the last couple of weeks when we talked about the feeding of the 5,000 because we looked at the primary meaning which all had to do with the identity of Jesus. Some people would say, oh, I don't think Mark is as strong on his Christology as John, for example. But when you look at how many of these miracles that are showing the identity of Jesus, I would say, oh, no, they're just approaching it from two different ways, but they're both very strong in their Christology and in their understanding of who Jesus is. And so there are some secondary lessons in addition to the uh, individuality and the identity of Jesus that we saw in the feeding of the 5,000. So let me give them to you real quick. These are going to be bullet statement points to follow up on that. One secondary lesson would be Jesus expects his disciples to participate in his work of redemption. Jesus is the one who performed the miracle, obviously, and yet he said, why don't you guys feed them? So clearly, he wanted to involve them in the process. And the same thing is true for us today. We can help distribute the living bread, so to speak, but it's God who quickens the heart and brings people alive. Any good growth that comes, comes because of Jesus Christ. Second, we can see that perception is not reality when it comes to God. The apostles' perception was, uh, Jesus, we don't have any food here. And we're a long way from villages and towns. Why don't we send these people away? Because it's getting late. And he says, well, why don't you feed them? And their perception was, oh, but it would take months and months of work to earn enough money to be able to buy enough food for these folks. But perception was not reality. The reality was Jesus was present there. And therefore, they had the one who was the agent of creation, and he has control over everything in creation, including quantity of the amount of bread and fish that were available so even though they were only given five loaves and two fish, there was enough for everybody with a whole bunch left over. Interestingly, I found that this was not the first time that this sort of thing had happened. There's an Old Testament foreshadowing of this that shows up that continues to tie these threads together, knowing that the Old Testament and the New Testament really fit well together. And that was with Elisha in 2 Kings. The prophet Elisha instructed one of his servants to feed some people who were there. There were approximately 100, so it says, 2 Kings 4.43. But they said, well, how can we set this before 100 men? Which means, for one thing, he was questioning the authority of the one who was giving him this command. Interesting. But it also showed that he had doubts in the ability of the God who was speaking through Elijah to do something with the little bit that they had in their possession. So sure enough, it says, the servants gave the food to the people and there was plenty for all and some left over. 2 Kings 4.44. Does that sound familiar? So I guess in addition to saying that Jesus was not only greater than Moses, as we found out last week, he's also greater than Elisha. Which is one reason why they said he was the prophet to come, the one who would be like Moses, the one who is greater than Moses, the one who in fact is co-equal with God himself. So that's what we continue to find out about Jesus. Thirdly, we also learned in follow-up to this feeding of the 5,000, 
that little becomes much when you give it to God. It's like that ordinary people song that was so big back in the 70s and 80s. Little becomes much when we place it in the master's hands. And we may feel like, oh, but God, I don't have much to give. We can realize that should not be an excuse because whoever has what little they've been given, as long as they give it over to the Lord, he can multiply it and do great things with it. So let's take a little baby step toward water walking with Jesus right now in Mark 6, 45 through 56. I'm reading from the NIV version today. Verse 45. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. This is after the feeding of the 5,000. Verse 46. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. And later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. And shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately, he spoke to them and said, Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. And then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. And when they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus and they ran throughout that whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. May the Lord add his insight and revelation to the reading of his word. Well, Mark's gospel, again, is showing us that this is a miracle about the identity of Jesus. We're really getting that hammered home to us each time we look at the miracles. The recap of the purpose of the feeding of the 5,000 was about this guy who could do only what God could do. So that miracle was certainly about his identity. We know who he is by what he has done. Identity is revealed through activity, and Mark makes it abundantly clear because he is an activity-oriented gospel writer. We had a professor back in college, Dr. Martin, who used to hammer that point home. He'd say, you know who he is by what he's done. He was a southerner, by the way. So let's take this verse by verse, and we're going to start to see this unpack as we learn some things about Jesus' identity, this, identity, this time through his water walking. Verse 45 of chapter 6. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to, and what does your translation say? Probably Bethsaida. Yeah, to Bethsaida. I think most translations use that term. And he dismissed the crowd. Uh-oh. You know what that means. Right off the bat, right out of the chute, we've got time for another apologetics affirmation. Aren't you excited? 
And the reason I need to tackle this right now is before we can dive into some of the other things that are going to grow out of the rest of this passage, the water walking passage, we have to address some of the things that skeptics would throw at us at this point. And we're finding more and more skeptics, especially if you look at all on the internet to see how people are discussing these issues. There are entire websites dedicated to that, trying to debunk the scriptures or to cast doubt on them. So I think it's important for us, if we're going to be contenders for the faith and defenders of the gospel, that we see that this is a reasonable gospel and it can be trusted. It's trustworthy. So let's tackle some apologetics issues. And the very first one has to do with the claim by skeptics that errors exist. And why did they say that? They'll say because in different gospels, there are different town names about where they're headed. And so somebody has to have gotten it wrong because certainly they must have heard it years later. And so they decided, oh, we'll just throw in this town name instead of that town name. Instead of Bethsaida, they had to go to this other spot. And one of the big things that you will see in these pushbacks by skeptics, they'll say, well, it looks like we actually have the disciples traveling from Bethsaida to Bethsaida. And they used two different gospel writers to come up with that conclusion. They got Luke and Mark. Luke, who says, then he slipped quietly away with them toward the town of Bethsaida, where this place took place, or where this miracle took place. And then Mark says, so they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. Then when they look at where they're pointing the disciples to go later, he went up to a mountainside to pray, and it says, and he got into the boat so they could take them to Bethsaida. So are they going from Bethsaida to Bethsaida? Don't these guys know where they're going? So let's dig into it because we need to find out why this can be explained. First of all, we need to know that the miracle itself did not actually take place in the city of Bethsaida. Looking at the context of all four Gospels, we can see that the miracle did take place and that it did not take place in a city. Mark 6.35, and it happened in a desolate place. Looked up a whole bunch of different translations. They used things like deserted, isolated, remote, quiet, lonely. Does that sound like a city? No. It's because they were near in the direction of Bethsaida, but it was in a desolate place. And the geography of that area would show us that probably it happened east of Bethsaida, which would be on the eastern side of the Jordan where the Jordan empties into the Lake of Galilee right there at the northern center of the lake. It's kind of made in the shape of about a light bulb, so to speak. And the Jordan comes right down at the top of the light bulb, which means that Jordan must have a really good idea. <laughs> Bing! Okay, just to get that in your mind. Well, it took place near Bethsaida. So first of all, we see that the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 happens just before Jesus walks on the water in a desolate place near Bethsaida. Probably east of there, especially because of the traditional spot which Joy and I saw when we were in Israel. And they still think that it happened in this big grassy area which was flatter than some of the rest of the area which can go very steeply up into the mountains. Next, we need to look at the original language because we see something that's a big aha light bulb moment as the Sea of Galilee lights up. And we can see that there's one word that makes a difference. It's the word that Mark uses for two to Bethsaida. That word for two in the Greek is actually uh, pros, P-R-O-S. We would say pros, but it's the Greek word pros. And it can mean two, like I went to lunch with these folks. 
or I went to my house. So that would mean literally to a place. Or it can be near or by. Or it can mean towards in a, terms of a direction. If I said, uh, you're going to go to Tractor Supply and get some more dog food, so you need to go towards Celine. But I could use the same word for that as if I were to say, you're going to go to Red Robin after lunch. Same word can mean any of these three things. And we know from Mark that he's actually used the term to mean nearby or towards in three other areas in context surrounding this specific event. So we need to ask, because you can get to the right answer if you ask the right questions. We need to ask, ah, so where were the disciples going after Jesus told them to go on ahead of me so that he could go up on the mountain to pray? Verse 53, when they had crossed over, after they had obeyed him, they landed at Gennesaret. Ah, interesting. So where is Gennesaret? Well, let's look at a simple map of the Sea of Galilee, shall we? Can you see how it looks like the shape of a light bulb? It's a little bit of a crumbly edged light bulb. That would be the type of edge I would make if I were trying to make a cookie into a light bulb. In order to get from a desolate place near Bethsaida to Gennesaret, the disciples would have needed to sail in their boat near or past Bethsaida as they headed west toward Gennesaret on the opposite side of the lake. You see that white arrow there. That's the direction they would have been heading in, which means they're doing exactly what Mark said. No discrepancy there. It's very likely indicating that he was giving them a direction when he said, go near Bethsaida, because that's the way they would have to go in order to get to Gennesaret on the other side of the lake. Go past Bethsaida, go toward Gennesaret. All of those using the word pros. Now, we also have the two-city same-name approach offered by some scholars. I, for one, don't think it's as obvious, but it could have happened because archaeology has revealed there were actually two cities named Bethsaida. One that would have been uh, made by Philip, Herod Philip. He was the guy who was married to Herodias, and then Antipas took his wife as his own, and she was the one that got really upset at John the Baptist. So Philip had created this city over on the eastern side of the Jordan, up there where it shows on the map. And he had also nicknamed that from a relative of his, Julius. So it would be Bethsaida Julius. But archaeology also shows that there was another Bethsaida, and it would have been closer to Capernaum on the opposite side of the lake. The problem comes in... Uh, the dating of these cities because archaeology tends to not want to give everything the benefit of the doubt. So they want to make sure that something actually existed in a specific time before they'll say, yes, this could be that. So we don't know for sure if both of these cities existed at exactly the same time when this miracle took place. If it did, problem solved. No big deal. That's one really easy solution. It would be like if you were in Nashville, Tennessee, and you ate breakfast in Nashville, and then you drove to Nashville, Indiana, four hours or so, uh, with a lot of potty stops, four and a half. You go from Nashville for breakfast, and you go to Nashville for lunch, and you wouldn't be wrong by saying, we drove from Nashville to Nashville. So they could have sailed from Bethsaida to Bethsaida. Problem solved, no big deal. But I think that the most simple solution is the most obvious, and it's the one about pros going to, meaning a direction, because they would have sailed by Bethsaida, especially if they got to Gennesaret on the other side. So if you take the two-town approach, that's great. Uh, you can go ahead and just take that to the bank if you'd like. I'm sticking with the pros 
solution because I think it just makes sense and it's obvious. And then, where is Capernaum? Because some people say, well, wait a minute. They said they were supposed to go over there that direction and they have a different town name. And then they say that they were supposed to go toward Capernaum and yet they landed in Gennesaret. Some people would say, well, there was a storm after all, so it probably blew them off course. So they were headed toward Capernaum, and the wind blew them down toward Gennesaret, and that's where they landed. Ah, okay. However, we also need to see that there's something about the Sea of Galilee and the geography and the town and region names there. Capernaum is included in the region called Gennesaret. Gennesaret was used to describe this fertile region. Joy and I drove on our tour bus through that region around that side of the lake and there's lots of palm trees and dates and olive groves and really fertile farmland and that's between Capernaum and Magdala. Mary Magdalene was from that area, Magdala. And so all that region is called the Gennesaret region. So if they were going toward Capernaum and they landed in Gennesaret, no discrepancy at all. That's exactly what they would say. So I think that what we need to recognize is that some people don't want to give Mark the benefit of the doubt or Luke or John and they're just looking for errors so that they can try to tear this thing up. They want to be able to redact the scriptures as much as possible. You may have had this happen to you. This is a good illustration. I got it from a guy named Mike Winger. He's really good at doing apologetics. Um, it's a humorous one and he brings this to, to light about some of you who used to be in high school at some point, and you may have had a high school English composition teacher that would give you an assignment and say, your assignment is to write instructions on how to do something simple. And one kid says, oh, okay, I'm going to write instructions on how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, the PBNJ assignment. And so he would write down a few things, and he would turn in the assignment, but then the teacher in trying to make her point that she was looking for a lot more detail, would start to try to read it in the most absurd, legalistic, wooden, realistic way without giving the writer the benefit of the doubt. So she would say, okay, get two pieces of bread. And she has a loaf of bread there. So she just grabs two pieces and throws them on the desk because he never mentioned a plate. Now, I think it could be assumed that if you're going to make a sandwich, you might want to put a plate there, but she didn't give him the benefit of the doubt, so she just throws the bread right on the desk. And then it says, put peanut butter on top of the two pieces of bread. And she goes, like this. And she just grabs the whole jar of peanut butter and squishes it right down on one of the slices of bread because she's trying to make the point, I want you to be so specific so that I know exactly what we're supposed to do in order to make this peanut butter sandwich. Well, I think, sure, most of us in most of the things that we encounter in life can give a writer the benefit of the doubt. Now, sometimes if it were writing instructions on a particular kind of brain surgery, I would like a few more details. We'd want to be pretty specific about that. But in thinking about these gospel writers, they knew the area really well. They knew their audience really well. And they would know that if they said in this direction, people knew what they were talking about. There's more than one way to describe how you're going to go somewhere. If I say, for those men who love to look at maps, I would say you go north two and a half miles and you turn left on 94 and then you start going west. They would understand that. Or if you're trying to describe it for somebody who's a little bit dyslexic or maps don't work for them, you'd take them the landmark way. And you'd say, go up here to the fork in the road, take the left, go to the tree with the big tire around it, and then go this direction. There's more than one way to describe how to get someplace. And I think that we need to start 
giving these gospel writers the benefit of the doubt when it comes to some of these details and not just leap to looking for errors every time we turn around. Why do so many people reject God's Word? Why do so many people look for the errors and make a big deal about them rather than looking to see, does this really speak to me in some way? Well, John 3.19, I think, gives us a clue about that. God's light came into the world, but people loved darkness more than the light. There's something about our sinful nature, and all of us have one, that causes us not to want to see certain truths that are there. And I think that sometimes it's because we feel a sense of conviction. That if this person is found to be true, and if he makes demands on my life, I'm going to have to do something about that. I'm going to have to surrender my life into this person's care. And a lot of people just don't want to do that. Let me wrap up with this true story that was sent to me a few weeks ago by my Scottish friend, John Dempster. Joy and I and the kids met him the very first time. We did a sabbatical way back 22 years ago, and we've remained friends ever since, and we're kind of like pen pals because we write back and forth through emails and stuff. And he writes a weekly column in the Inverness Highland News, and this appeared in one of those columns. Now, I'm going to save the title for later because it's a spoiler alert, and I want to build up the drama so that you'll have a big Sea of Galilee light bulb moment when you get to that. But let me read this true story for you about a guy who was all, always looking for the errors until finally he just couldn't ignore the still small voice any longer. David had married a church organist named Heather, and he accompanied her reluctantly to a few significant church events. But the real catalyst for David's change was a growing sense that there must be something more. He sensed that there was an indefinable factor missing from his purely scientific explanations of reality. And he also felt a growing restlessness in his work. There was an inner knowing that there was somewhere else for him to be, but he couldn't put his finger on it. That restlessness grew inside David until he could not ignore it any longer. Now, David was a systematic researcher. And when he would dive into researching something, he would go full on and right into it. He explored various faith traditions. He explored Buddhism, Islam, New Age spiritualities. And in them, he found many attractive insights. And he left an exploration of Christianity to the very last. He thought maybe Christianity was the faith of his grandparents a dated establishment belief system, and probably a cultural relic. One day, he was in the airport getting ready to board a plane on a long flight, and he thought, well, I'll go look for a book to read. And he looked at the bookshelves and found this book. It was called Making Sense of God, An Invitation to the Skeptical by American Pastor Tim Keller. Some of us have studied some of Tim Keller's writings. It was the subtitle that really grabbed David, an invitation to the skeptical. And so, it was a long flight. He's a good reader. So by the end of that flight, he had read the entire book, and he was saying to himself, this is it. This is truth. <laughs> he realized that Christianity was philosophically persuasive. And in the next few days, he began exploring the Christian faith even deeper. 
He dipped into the Bible and was just astonished. He was aware of a growing sense of connectedness to God. And when Sunday came, he surprised his wife, Heather, by saying, Heather, I want to go to church. Eighteen months later, he was helping his daughter do her church cleaning chores. And there among the pews, he had a sense of a quiet voice saying, there's more you can do here. Now, I'll tell you the title of the article because it has that spoiler alert. The title of this article is From 30-something Atheist to 50-something Minister. Through a discernment process and through the mentorship of some old wise guys in the UK, David is just on the cusp of becoming a fully-fledged minister in Scotland. And I think that David's story, and so many others like it, continue to reveal to me that God is still calling people. And He's calling people to look past their skepticism and to actually see what the Bible actually says rather than only jumping on the errors that they think exist. And once they decide, oh, this is a reasonable faith. And it's a trustworthy historical book then God's Holy Spirit can continue that process of drawing them to the point when they say, I've got no other choice. If Jesus is who He claims to be, I need to follow Him. And God's loving persistence continues to reveal truth to people like David and people that we might know. And so I'm praying that someday all of us will be able to stand and share testimonies of people we know and love that we've been praying for who have taken the same kind of journey and who can finally say, I have embraced Jesus Christ. He is my Lord. He's my Savior. I believe Him to be God the Son and I'm following Him because He makes my life so much more meaningful and I'm preparing for eternity in His presence. Could it be that God is whispering to one of you? If so, I would say please surrender. Accept the grace God wants to pour out into your heart. And could it be that maybe we know somebody and we've been praying for them. We want them to surrender. Keep praying. Persistent prayer has an amazing effect. I watched it with my own grandfather on my father's side. Took years before he finally succumbed to that still small voice, but he did. And so let's pray together and ask God to continue that job of drawing people into an awareness that He is real and He makes life different for everybody who trusts Him. Father, I do pray that if there's somebody who needs to take that step, they'll do it right now and they'll say, I need to embrace Christ. I want the joy that I see other people having. I want to be able to sing the songs that they sing and mean them. I want that life abundant because I feel like there has been something missing from my life. And now I know that that something is a somebody. It's Jesus. And I need Jesus. Please come into my heart. Change me and continue that transformation process which you promised so I can be more like you for the rest of my life until I get to walk with you in heaven forever. And Father, if there's somebody that we've had deep on our hearts and we're continuing to pray for them, I pray for those people right now represented by countless people who may be lifting them up I pray that you'll speak to that loved one through your Holy Spirit, that you'll place the right people in their path, that you'll make it abundantly clear to them that you are absolutely real 
and that you're alive and that you may make life different for people who will accept you and accept your grace. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for the many answers to prayer that we know we have already seen. And ahead of time, we're thanking you for those answers to prayer that we are going to see because we know you're not stopped in your work yet. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.